Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. What an inspiring conversation we have today with Lauren and Lisa Poncha of Stemple Creek Ranch. Our conversation reminds me of that saying, teamwork makes the dream work. Well, Lauren and Lisa are a great example of what it looks like when an idea becomes reality. They started Stemple Creek Ranch with the dream of raising quality, grass-finished beef and lamb to work with and not against Mother Nature. And they've redefined family ranching. Lauren goes on to tell us they are really focused on soil health, water quality, and especially biodiversity, with lots of different things living there on their property, including trees, birds, and all the different insects. We find out how the operation works, and as Lauren said, not only is the grass greener, there's a lot more of it. And then what do you do when something like a pandemic hits? Well, You shore up, you redefine again, and you find out what works for your business and operation. Not only have they redefined a business, Lauren says we're paying attention to the soil. We are soil farmers and photosynthesis farmers. Attention to detail, working with Mother Nature, and recognizing the benefits of a functioning system are what makes this family team work. So let's listen in as we discuss not only how they began their journey, but what it looks like to work together as a family to see it through. Lauren and Lisa, thank you for joining us today. It's so great to have you both here and tell this what I think is a really inspirational story about how you've really worked to, as you say, redefine family ranching. Sure. Go ahead. Ready to go? You start. Okay. So uh, I'm a fourth generation rancher actually out in West Marin and grew up on the ranch, loved it. Typical childhood, rural America, loved it, went away to school at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo with the intent on coming home and managing the operation. And what I quickly realized my third year uh, at Cal Poly is that there wasn't really room for me at home financially. There wasn't an opportunity for me at the ranch. So I took some jobs in sales and um, traveled all over the country. And I worked for three or four big, huge pharmaceutical companies, uh, chemical companies. And um, I learned a tremendous amount. After I graduated, I learned a tremendous amount amount about myself, but also about marketing and sales and people in general. And when I was doing that, traveling all over the country, really, I couldn't stop thinking about the ranch and how I could make the ranch into a real business. So all through my 20s, I worked for other people and I worked on the ranch, but not really in the business. I On the weekends and stuff, I'd, I'd travel home, work on the ranch. And right around my 30th birthday, um, Lisa and I met at Cal Poly, which was awesome. And we were living in Sacramento right around my 30th birthday. I came home from one weekend of working on the ranch and said to Lisa, I said, hey, we need to move back over here to Marin and try and make this a real business. And if we fail, that's fine because we'll at least have given it a try. But if we don't try, we're always going to wonder what would have happened. So we met with my parents halfway and we said, hey, this is what we want to do. We want to run the ranch, but quite frankly, we don't want to do it with you. We want to do it on our own. And we basically want to retire you. We can pay rent 
at, and you can, we can guarantee you're going to make more money than you are right now and do no work. And so we bought all their cattle, we leased all their land, and we started um, uh, what was the beginning stages, the infancy of Stemple Creek Ranch. That was about 15 years ago. And then about 11 or 12 years ago, we started, we came up with the logo, Stemple Creek Ranch actually started um, marketing direct to consumers, got the whole place certified organic, really started the regenerative uh, agriculture back then. I mean, some of our principles started years before, and we've just kind of taken them to the next level in the last 10 years. And now we, I quit my day job six years ago. Um, we're trying to facilitate a means so Lisa can quit her day job and we're both full, fully emerged in Stemple Creek Ranch. And we have two young children that have come along the way. Uh, Juliana, who's eight, and Avery, who's 11. And um, let's see, now we market direct all over the country. Literally, we'll ship to Hawaii and we'll ship to New York City um, to consumers' homes. And we sell beef, lamb, and pork mostly beef, uh, followed by lamb, followed by pork. The pork is uh, pasture-raised, but not 100% grass-fed. The beef and the lamb are 100% grass-fed. And let's see, what else? We're, we were the we first- We sell a lot to grocery stores and restaurants and all of that. I mean, that's a right. big piece of it. Right, yeah. We sell, weekly, we sell a lot to local mom and pop grocery stores and um, restaurants. The whole COVID thing has changed things up quite a bit but um, we're still doing that. And um, let's see, stewardship wise, we were really blessed because we were chosen about seven or eight years ago to be um, one of the demonstration sites for what's called the Marin Carbon Project. And what our whole thesis of the, of the project was to show that by applying a quarter inch or half inch of compost, we could sequester more carbon than we're emitting and actually increase carbon sequestration through grazing and managing our pastures more effectively and paying attention. Um, and so that's been a big eye-opening experience for us. And we've learned a lot about soil health and what we used to think we were, or what I thought we were was grass farmers. And really about eight or 10 years ago, really that concept got flipped on its head and we're not grass farmers. We are soil farmers and photosynthesis farmers. We're trying to make more photosynthesis happen to pump um, high quality nutrients into the soil and feed all the life in the soil and basically sequester more carbon and produce really awesome perennial plants that the cows can harvest with their mouths and turn into high quality protein that we can ultimately sell and turn to money in our operation. Well, that is that? excellent. I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time today to be here on the podcast. Um, I was really blown away when I got to tour your ranch back when grass-fed exchange was held there we were one of the tour sites i believe what was that two years ago we were there and uh i just i could see the passion in you lauren as you just kind of literally bounced across the pasture to show us your cow herd show us your finishing herd you know keep your keep your dog with you and you just you just have a you just have a blast doing what you do in that the wedding venue there the the trees and the old barn that uh, you've converted into an event venue you've just really done some amazing things there that I think uh, some other people really need to take a look at it. And like you said, you know, when you guys made that big leap of faith when you're 30 years old there, that, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to take it a different direction and, and look at how can we do things to create greater value 
right? So, I mean, that's how you're able to pay your parents more in rent than what they were making in operations and still make a livelihood for yourself. So you were doing things of greater value at that time to make that all work. How did that transition go? How, what, what did, uh, what did the, the family think when you approached them with that idea? It actually, I mean, to Lauren's parents' credit, it was pretty smooth. You know, we knew that if we were going to make a business for ourselves on the ranch, it was going to have to be something very different. And at that time, we didn't know exactly what that was going to be. Um, but so that's why we said to Lauren's parents, you know, we don't want to do this with you because we didn't want it to be, you know, conflict over why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Because we knew that whatever it was, it was going to be a different model. Um, and they were extremely supportive from the very beginning, you know, they were ready to step aside. And, um, so that was great. I mean, you know, not to say that they didn't, um, you know, as we were making all of our decisions, it was like over years, you know, that this was happening and, you know, they and many other people around us definitely, um, I think were scratching their head quite a bit at, oh, oh goodness, you're doing that and you're doing this. And, you know, we spent years, um, just reinvesting everything into the business. And so, you know, for many years there was no, we were not paying ourselves an income. And I think a lot of people, questioned, um, you know, the continual investments that we were making in the business. Um, but, um, but they, you know, they were supportive and they, um, were, um, definitely are, are, you know, cheerleaders on the sideline. There's definitely ups and downs, especially in the first few years, because we went from a very conventional system to a not conventional system. And my dad is a, conservationist at heart like he wanted to fix a lot of the problems that had been created the 100 years prior but he would use a lot of the traditional means of doing that you know so sprays and set stocking and so it took about five years for them to really get the confidence that okay these kids are going to do the right thing and they're actually this is cool what they're doing and now they're our biggest fans i would say they're they're super proud of us well that's wonderful i uh it's it's great that they were able to step back you know what i think one of the tragedies in in farming today in america is um unfortunately many people don't step back until um you know (laughs) unfortunately their funeral and then then you wind up with 60 year old um, sons or daughters that, that just don't know how to handle the operation. And you see that happen many, many times. So really yeah. kudos to you and your fam and your family's leadership in making that transition happen in it. And it is fun now, 15 years later that you're an overnight success, right? You know, right, it just, just exactly. takes 15 years to be that overnight exactly. success and well. to see it come together. So, yeah. So compare and contrast uh, without naming names because you you know you still have to drive by everybody else in the neighborhood on the way to work. Yeah. But just maybe some of the elements of a conventional system that you were doing, or maybe what the neighbors are still doing, uh, which I know we we saw some things across the fence line when we were there. Just kind of compare and contrast what you do uh, compared to other people, and, and why that's different. Why you do that? Just maybe a little more in the nuts and bolts of what is conventional versus your approach to. Um, raising animals and, and what that means? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'd say the biggest differences between us and our neighbors or others in our community that are doing things conventionally is we are really focused on 
soil health, water quality, um, biodiversity is the biggest thing. Like we want lots of different things living there on our property, including trees and birds and all the different um, insects. And so we pay really close attention to our riparian corridors. We fenced off all of them. And there's some pretty dramatic landscape uh, pictures that my neighbors would, I mean, they see it every day, but there's trees all the way up to the fence. And then it's, you know, bare landscape that cows eat all of the forage on the stream bank. They drink their water. They get all of their water from the stream, not from developed water sources. So the things that we've done that kind of started out holistically for one thing that led to other beneficial parts of our business are like we fenced the creeks for water quality and we planted trees for water quality. But the, the byproduct of that is we have tons of bird habitat. Now we have 50 types of migratory birds that nest in the, in the riparian corridors and the water doesn't turn green like it does on the neighbor's side because it stays cool from the shade canopy. And the, the other thing that we've noticed is now we have a huge carbon sink. So if the whole carbon farming becomes more important, well, we're growing tons of biomass in the riparian corridor and we will still graze the riparian corridor. Um, do we just do it strategically? We don't give willy, willy nilly 100% access year round because we want all the things that are living there to stay healthy and they're not going to if we continually take the next bite of growth out of it. So um, that's probably the single biggest difference between us and our neighbors is <clears throat> taking care of the soil, taking care of the riparian areas, and then it, it kind of bleeds, as you say, up onto the uplands. And <clears throat> we're, we're really trying to rest the land uh, for most of the year, frankly. And we just have grazing events throughout the year but most of the time like we do tours Lisa and I do tours and people are like well where are all the cows <laughs> well there's a thousand acres there and you know unless the tour happens to be when the cows are in that pasture like when you were there for the grass-fed exchange I timed it so the cows would be right there but uh but um you know sometimes they might be a mile and a half away and we have to drive to go see the cows instead of just seeing them right next to the barn you know getting a flake of alfalfa so yeah, I'd I, say that's the biggest thing. We're paying attention to the soil. We're really trying to promote perennial plants, and that takes rest and recovery. So I think there's a couple really good points you made in there as far as the rest and recovery. It's not about the how much, how often you move your herd. It's about how long the herd stays off a spot, especially yeah. in your area where you have all your rainfall really comes in uh, two months Is that in, in the spring, and then it's maybe some dews and those kind of things for the rest of the year. So how you, your grazing management is critical so that you're not having to feed hay you know, constantly. So that, that's one thing. But the repairing area, that is really unique. And most requirements and a lot of the things that come out of NRCS is you can't ever have access to those kind of things. But I liked mm -hmm. how you said we still graze those but strategically. So we, you know, right. give them limited access to it. So we're still getting weed control and, and grass uh, prospering by doing that. So that, that's really interesting how you're, you're making it all work in a, in a really um, different climate. So talk a little more about the climate. You said three months of the year, you're getting rain and the grass is just growing. You can't keep up with it. Then, then we get the majority, we normally majority get 32 inches of rain a year and it starts around Halloween and it's over around uh, you know, the later into the spring, 
we get the rain is the most important. So by far, Lisa just stated that it is really more than three months, but the big rainfall events are November, December, January. And the more we can space those out and have them be, you know, we get two inches of rain in October and two inches of rain in April, we're going to have a great grass season because we're going to get some in the middle of this winter. And it's usually 10 inches in a week or something like that. A lot of it runs off. So that in effect is really, really, that's what really got us excited about carbon farming in the first place. It's like carbon is like a sponge. So the more carbon we can make in the soil um, and develop in the soil and feed the life in the soil, when it rains, that sponge is soaking it up and it's not washing off into the ocean or into the creeks or into the dam, like ponds. And we're storing it in the soil. So that's another big thing that we're seeing is our grass is greener longer and there's more of it. And our water quality is better because if there was one thing that I could change on all my neighbor's properties, it would be to develop water to be able to move the cattle around strategically so they could go to the tops of the hills where the grass is maybe two feet tall, but they're not going to walk to the tops of the hills if there's no water on the top of the hills. So and those are um, some- it's the single biggest input. And those are some real hills where you're at too. I mean, that's a walk. Yeah. I, I, you get to do it every day, but the, you know, this skinny guy here walking up and down those hills, uh, I, I got a good workout doing that. So yeah. I can understand why those cows are staying in the bottoms, but talk a little bit more about the carbon farming and the project that you're doing there with the compost where you're adding a little bit of compost to that. Uh, I'm assuming that's to help stimulate more grass growth so that we can sequester more carbon, increase stocking rates so that you're basically jump starting that carbon cycle while still having a good place to to place compost in, in low use rates. Talk about what you've learned through that project, the impacts and all those all those fun things you've got going on there. Um, well, I've learned that we can basically double productivity on a lot of the land that we manage just by adding a simple, small amount of life to the soil and by grazing it effectively. Um, we can really increase our tonnage and our pounds of production. I mean, on the ranch that we currently are at now, when we started managing it uh, 15 years ago, we ran 185 pairs um, year round and they were set stocked in all these different pastures. And now we, you know, there was times this year that we had a thousand animals on the property, the same property um, for a shorter amount of time, but it allowed us to make, you know, to sell literally thousands or frankly hundreds of thousands of pounds more meat and protein off the property by managing the livestock differently. So if you do the math and you figured you, you had just for easy math, you had 200 animals and they all raised a 700 pound calf, we'd sell 140,000 pounds of protein off the pasture at weaning time. And now, you know, we might have 500,000 pounds of protein in one of cows in one group rotating. And if they're gaining two, you know, two pounds a day or three pounds a day, we're selling literally hundreds of thousands of pounds um, off of that same land. So just fascinating. And then, then when you do that, now your resource efficiency is so much better because you didn't, there was no more rain that fell on your land versus your neighbor, right? There was no more, it was just simply utilizing um, kind of a compounding and the compounding cascading effects, like I talked about, are really starting to come home for you. And as I would assume that every year you would expect that you can continue to increase this on the, on the productivity side. 
I hope so. I hope so. And we're really trying to now, like when I was a kid, we, there was a lot of dairies around and chicken farms and we would spread raw manure on the pastures. We'd get big growth. And the, the analogy that I use now, and I, I got this from the coal masters is, you know, instead of making McDonald's food, you know, which is a lot of green grass, but it's not super healthy. We're trying to make, you know, shape anise high quality food that every bite has more nutrients balanced in it instead of you know every bite is a big mac um, so we might grow the same amount but it's going to be higher quality more nutrient dense higher bricks all of those things but i will tell you that this year is the first year that i was like man what we're doing is really paying off um, and i've seen it every year but this year i was just like we had a really dry different winter and we actually had a hell of a grass year for on our property. And our neighbors would be driving by going, man, you got a lot of feed, Lauren. I said, well, yeah, well, I haven't grazed that field in 180 days, you know. So it's all winter. Why photosynthesis is not going crazy because the temperature temperatures are low. We're still photosynthesizing and growing in the winter and building root mass. And then when the opportunity gets right and warms up, as long as we have moisture, we're we're blowing up with tons of forage. So, so how much fun is that for you, Lisa or, or Lawrence, just see that all that hard work that you've done for so long, just to see, especially this year when it was dry, um, for you to see that resilience that you've now built into your soil system. And that resilience came from your management. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I think it's cool. I mean, it, it just makes me more, there's so much more to do. You know, I mean, we're, we're seeing good results, but we're just basically the tip of the iceberg. We have lots more opportunity. We, I was always under the impression we were going to build the soil down. And what I'm really learning quickly is we're not, but we're on subsoil and we're building it up. And, you know, I think that we've built two, three inches of subs of good, beautiful soil. I was just digging holes yesterday. I think we built two or three inches in the last 10 years. It's a slow, slow process, but I, two or three inches is a, is a lot in the grand scheme of things, but I want to, I want to build 10 inches. You know, I want to be like the Gabe Browns of the world and be like, Whoa, you know, we're, you know, we're at 20% carbon in some of these pastures, you know, but it's building soil up, not down. So. Well, if you think about that, that three inches that the two of you have built, that's a million pounds of topsoil you've added. That's a 500 tons per acre of topsoil you've added. So didn't all come from that much compost, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, being a farmer myself, I get all excited about talking about the production and those kind of things. Um, and, And sometimes you're so busy doing what you're doing do you guys get a chance to take a little break, a little pause? And, and I'll tell you what Robin and I do. We'll, we'll get in the UTV. We'll grab a bottle of wine and we'll go out next to the cows at sunset and, and, and pour a couple glasses and just enjoy it. Do you guys get to do anything fun like that or, or something amazing. where you enjoy what you do? No, we do. We are, um, it's both a blessing and a curse that we don't live on our home ranch. We live in town. And so, um, Again, it's good and bad, but we have a cute little sweet farmhouse there that we can go to and stay in and bring the kids. And so we, you know, when we're there, it's actually a little bit away for us. I mean, of course it's work, so it's not really like vacation. (laughs) 
um, you know, there's always chores to do and there's always something to work on and there's always animals to take care of, but we do stay out there and, um, you know, have friends out there and, you know, we definitely, you know, sit in the garden and pour the glass of wine or the cocktail and take a walk, you know, into the pasture and just reflect upon, um, on how, you know, how fortunate we are and um, just that it feels good to be at the spot where we're at. And of course, I would be lying if I didn't add, you know, but there is always that, oh, we can do this and we should do this. And, you know, this is what needs to get done by next Friday. <laughs> um, there's, you know, there's always the list of, of what we want to keep working on, but, um, but it's pretty great to be able to reflect and enjoy. I'm wondering when you're reflecting on that, I just think, are you surprised sometimes? Because if we think about, so if you, if you grew up as a farm kid and you have this traditional idea of how soil works and, and what we used to think we knew, and now you look back as you're reflecting and you see everything that has changed, are, are you surprised at really, I mean, though it seems like it's been a, a long time, but really in a short period of time, how you've been able to, to make those significant changes on your operation. Is that surprising to you? Or are you like, oh, no, we kind of expected that? No, honestly, it blows my mind what we've done in the last 10 years, especially 11 years. Because we one thing we didn't talk about yet, but the place where you went visited is the neighbor's ranch. And we bought it 10 years ago. And we've put all of our, all of our love and sweat and tears and blood into that place making it that special spot and we're trying to figure out like how can we afford to buy a ranch with cattle in west marin county 50 miles from 60 miles from san francisco and as you can imagine it's not a cheap um endeavor <laughs> yeah so we've basically you know we basically figured it out and tried to turn every every little enterprise on the ranch into a profit center we have three little airbnbs and we have the the barn that we use as an education slash party barn and we do tours and we educate people and we do all kinds of things and it feels uh i i get giddy every time i drive in the driveway literally every single day or whenever i come in i'm just like i can't believe we did this we pulled this off if there's no other accomplishment ever in my life i'm very blessed to have been able to do that with my partner and make like i mean it's a it's our own legacy um which is really awesome yeah. And the soil health side is, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, but sometimes I just try stuff and like you keep throwing enough mud on the wall, some of it's going to stick. I wish if I could go back and do it all over again, that I was more detailed about this is what I did and this is when I did it and I captured the data and these are the results. But we don't have a lot of time or money to monitor effectively. So I monitor, one of the best ways that I monitor is with with an iPhone and I take pictures of moving the cattle and, you know, they're timestamped. So I know, oh, okay, it looks like I had, you know, this year we had this many in this group and they stayed there for that long. We have not a traditional grazing chart. We have a photo, like a topo map photo on the wall in the barn. And my employee that moves the cattle around, uh, he's a Hispanic fellow. And he says, you know, we've talked through this group as the Gordos which are the fat ones. And this group is the mamas, the buckets, you know, whatever, um, the pears. And and we say his deal is when he moves them, he writes down with the pen how many cows were there and for how many hours. 
And then that's how I just, uh, how I dictate what our real grazing chart is. And, you know, part of this is a dance with mother nature. We've talked about it tons of times is we're, we're just figuring it out. We try not to step on each other's toes. And a lot of it is intuition and art um, and luck. Um, but a lot more of it now is intuition and, you know, we still have daily challenges and weekly challenges and yearly challenges, right? Like right now, um, our sales have gone up. Our inventory in cattle has gone up and we're waiting for when mother nature is going to give us the first brain to be able to fill our bank account and know where we can go. So we're just trying to balance the residual and leave every place with at least a thousand or 1500 pounds of dry matter and um, harvest animals as fast as possible and make it cash flow. And it's the stuff bank that leaves account some, of grass, not of money. Bank <laughs> account of grass. Yeah. yeah. No, our bank account of grass. We have lots of different bank accounts as you go back and, you know, I think, I don't remember exactly who it was, but the three, Bud Williams, maybe there's three bank accounts. There's your grass, your cattle, and your real bank account that's with green money. And it's trying to balance those at all times. And I've been bankrupt on grass before. And I, um, if you go back to that, it's like you can never have too much money in the bank and you can never have too much grass in the bank, but you can have too many cattle. That's the single thing I always think about. It's like, you know, too many cattle will bankrupt your other two bank accounts. And we do not want that. We want to prosper, not be belly up. So, so I think it's really interesting what, what you've done and how you look at that. But on the other hand, the thing we really got to dive into, and, and I'm, I'm excited to, to hear about your marketing side of your business, because as farmers, we love to talk about production, right? You know, that's cool. It's raising the animals, raising the animals. But at the end of the day, if you don't sell it yourself, you get to sell it at the sale barn. And <laughs> you, you can't buy ranches uh, adjacent to the Bay Area no. with sale barn prices on your beef, correct? So that required a diff- another level of thinking. That is correct. <laughs> so walk us through the dynamics of, of how you got started in there. And boy, some of those challenges uh, of, of sure. connecting with customers and the processing, uh, the timing, you know, fresh and uh, versus frozen and all these other myriad of things you've had to go through because there is a reason why people take it to the sale barn, right? It's done and it's easy. (laughs) This is the part of the conversation that I get really excited about. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I mean, this is another, you know, overnight 15 year success. Um, And I don't, I mean, you said the word success. It's like every year is just another year for us. But um, I mean, it started really that um, we, we as a couple and, and, you know, our own family unit decided that if we were going to be working in agriculture, we had to figure out a way to actually prosper. And, um, and, you know, it not only had to be um, sustainable for the land and for the animals, but it had to be sustainable for our family. And um, we were, you know, 15 years ago, kind of honing the cattle themselves to, and we figured, well, if we don't want to sell at the sale barn, then we need to have a niche product. So what's our niche product? Because if we have a niche product, then we could sell it for the price that we want to sell it at. And um, it slowly evolved into organic, into grass-fed, grass-finished, and selling directly to consumers. And we really just had a couple of acquaintances at the very beginning that said, hey, I want, I want to buy 
meat from a farmer. I know you. Can you sell me a cow? And we were like, what? Huh, sure. Okay. You know, and we did it and we harvested a cow and we had it processed and they loved it. And then they want you know, it, and that's really how it started. And um, we put up our first very simple, you know, five page website, um, in 2009, as I was about 40.5 weeks pregnant with our first child. <laughs> and, you know, we had a few things for sale. We had a quarter beef, we had a half beef, a whole beef and a whole lamb. That's what we had. And it was all local because you had to go to the butcher shop and pick it up. And, and we didn't know if one person was going to go to our website and buy that, but they did. And they started buying and so, you know, then, um, you know, we were coordinating harvest days of how many animals we were harvesting at a time. And, um, and then um, there's in our area here, we're very lucky, right, to be on the, you know, cusp of this huge metropolitan area of the San Francisco Bay Area. And one of the three largest farmers markets in the country is here in Marin County in our own backyard. And the managers of that farmer's market came to us and said, Hey, we've, we know who you are. We've heard about what we're doing. We would love to have you sell at the farmer's market. And we never thought that we were going to sell at a farmer's market. We never thought that was like going to be our model, but we felt like, okay, they're coming to us. We felt like it was a gift horse. We couldn't look in the eye. And so we figured out how to, you know, get, um, beef and lamb, you know, um, cut and wrapped for retail sale, which is like a whole nother thing. We figured USDA. that out USDA certified and, you know, Lauren, the, he still had his corporate job at the time. And I had our little one at home and I'm an attorney. I was running my law practice and, you know, we would work, you know, six days a week. And then on the seventh day on Sunday, we would send Lauren to the farmer's market to put up the stand and to sell our products at the farmer's market. And, you know, eventually, of course, we hired someone to come help us with it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that was kind of the next step because at this farmer's market, there's literally tens of thousands of people that shop at it. It's not like, oh, you know, a little, you know, it's like a huge thing. It's year round, it's every Sunday, it's people go there like it's their religion you know, to do all it's of their shopping. It's a sure. total yeah. community yeah. event. There's music and there's food and you can sit down and eat. And what happened there was that we met a lot of chefs from restaurants because they were there shopping for their restaurants. And so that was really how we started getting momentum um, with local restaurants. And, um, and it just kind of grew from there. Eventually we figured, well, we have these USDA, you know, certified retail um package, you know, cut and wrap, we should put that on our website too, you know? So then we put that on our website and we figured out how to get shipping boxes and insulated boxes and shipping rates. And, you know, how do we do this? And that was not, um, what Lauren's laughing because we would, we would always want to ship the box, pack the boxes on Fridays so that we didn't sell that meat at the weekend farmer's market. You know, we would pack the box on Friday and then ship it on Monday. And, you know, for a long time, Lauren and I, every Friday night after working all week, we would take our kids and drive them over to where we had our warehouse. And he and I on a Friday night would sit there packing boxes, inevitably arguing, but you know, romantic. I wasn't doing it right. <laughs> very, very romantic. 
very romantic. Oh, okay, those, With no wine was involved. No, that it was not. But you know, we did it, and you know, it was just kind of like it's truly just been one little step at a time. So if you, um, you know, we slowly hired staff, you know, one at a time, being scared every time we were adding someone else to the team. You know, everyone starts part time because we're like, ah, we don't think we can hire someone full time. You know, so we hire someone part-time and then six months later they're working full-time and you know every every little every little step um we at some point one thing that we worked really hard at for, at the pretty early on is we worked really hard to network to get into our local whole food stores and at the time whole foods was purchasing all of their grass-fed grass-finished beef through um, another company that basically was like a distributor. And so we got to the right person at Whole Foods. Finally, you know, it took probably two years. They were sold that they wanted our product. You know, they sent us to the distributor and we started selling to our nine local Whole Foods stores here in the North San Francisco Bay area. And that was huge. That was a huge milestone for us. But quite frankly, as soon as we were in Whole Foods, we knew immediately that we needed to figure out a way to get out because we felt like, okay, Whole Foods is great. And we were happy with the price we negotiated and it was a really good thing for us. But we also knew that Whole Foods was not going to be loyal to Lauren and Lisa Pancha. Like, you know, they could turn around the next day and, you know, sneeze and have a different business plan. And so we didn't want to um, put too much, um, too many eggs in that basket and so we immediately started networking and, you know, um, working towards selling to locally owned grocery stores, you know, small grocery stores, because we just felt like that was a better fit for who we are as a company and the types of, um, you know, retail outlets that we wanted to hitch our wagon to. And so that, again, took years, but we eventually, you know, were able to connect and pick up some local amazing um, grocery stores. And so eventually we were able to say thank you, but no thank you to Whole Foods and, you know, sell our product that way. So um, I would say um, before COVID, um, our biggest market segment was um, grocery stores and mom and pop owned butcher shops, like whole animal butcher shops. Um, and then next after that was restaurants. And then next after that was the direct to retail, uh, direct to consumer, you know, off our website and at the farmer's market. And then of course, here comes March, 2020. And um, all of the, you know, the restaurants here closed. And so that was, you know, devastating on so many levels. Um, incredibly stressful for, I mean, for everybody, right, in the whole world. Um, but how, what we did is we were able to take, you know, the um, larger, like, restaurant cuts of meat that we had in process or in storage or in whatever and further process them down into retail cuts. And then, immediately we started seeing a lot higher sales on our website from people that were, you know, stuck at home and not either not able to get out to the grocery store, not wanting to go to the grocery store. And so um, it, our online sales did pick up at that point. Um, so now I would say 
um, you know, the continuum is that the grocery stores and butcher shops are still our number one market segment. And then after that, it's direct to consumer, both at the farmer's markets and on our website. And, you know, of course, we we do have restaurant customers that are open, that have been open for quite some time, that are, you know, kind of slowly rebuilding up their base. You know, sadly, we have lots of restaurant customers that closed and are never opening again. It's a really, um, you know, I don't know how the restaurant industry is going to bounce back from this, um, which is devastating to us because, of course, these people are people are friends and partners and, you know, all of that. Um, but, you know, the restaurants are creeping back in and creeping back up and we're doing everything we can to support them. And um, ho- hopefully, you know, they'll continue to grow back to what they were and more. Okay, so amazing journey that you've been on there. And I hope for the other farmers that are listening to this podcast today, really listen to that journey. And it's really just responding to what the market's telling you instead of ignoring it, right? And hoping, putting your fingers in your ears and hoping it'll go away and just I want to do what I've always done. I mean, you've responded to the market over time, little by little. Then, like you said, March of 2020 hits and your number two customer segment, restaurants, is gone. I mean, yeah. just stopped. And uh, the, the, the cattle, uh, the sheep, the, the hogs, they don't just, you don't just put them on slim fast, right? No. Nope. And, and, and you don't just tell the processor, okay, I'm sorry, all this that we had lined up for the next two months, you're just going to have to reschedule that six months from now. That don't work either. So right. you had to, at that moment in time, I mean, I, I think you kind of under you kind of downplayed it a little bit there, Lisa. I mean that was uh, I, I mean that that's a huge huge event. Now, fortunately, on on my little experiment we're doing on our farm, we're all direct to consumer. So okay. um, we went from you know filling orders to oh crap, we've got a lot of orders to fill. I mean that was what yes. we were struggling with was just getting it that's out the door. But you had to change it completely from you know primal cuts probably or subprimal cuts to different packaging, maybe even get some reprocessed yeah. and and repackaged and then figure out how to sell that added volume. Uh, I mean, just uh, week by week and, and, yeah, and you have all your friends going through, just describe, you know, maybe some of the fears and some of the courage it took to, to make that, to make that sure. switch. And you know what? There's one thing I want to go back and say from – about five minutes ago that I think is really important from the very beginning again in about 2009 when we first put up our website we were thinking like why are people going to buy from us and how are we going to get them to buy from us and we decided for ourselves they need to trust us and they need to believe that we're really doing what we do because in our industry unfortunately that's not everybody And we felt like that's how we were going to set ourselves apart. Okay. And so from the very beginning, again, with an infant in my hands, we started doing free tours at the ranch. And that basically meant we would put it on our website. When we started social media, we would put it on social media and we would just say, hey, anybody can sign up and come to our ranch and we're going to grill you some tasters and we're going to show you around and we're going to answer all your questions and we're just going to tell you who we are. 
And at the very beginning, it like, we felt like it was like guerrilla marketing. Like it didn't cost a lot of money. It cost time. Okay. Because again, we were working seven days a week, but it was, and you know, it was like a trickle, like it started small and then people would tell their neighbors. And then when social media started taking off, they would post it on social media and then other people would find out. And, you know, those you know, at this point, hundreds of tours that we've done over the years, I think was a huge part of slowly building our business because it created transparency, you know, that people would be like, oh, we can go to the ranch. And you know what? It's not all going to be perfect. We're not all dressed perfectly and everything isn't, you know, it was just like a real experience of like, this is who we are. This is what we can show you. This is what we can teach you about local agriculture and why we're doing what we're doing. But I think that was absolutely a huge part in how our direct to consumer business kind of, you know, that we were able to grow it over the years. And, and I one other thing that Lisa, just to piggyback on what she said is we, we strive for honesty, transparency, and quality. And if we ever step on the chalk lines, we want to go backwards, not keep growing. We'll keep growing as long as we can do those three, three things. And the other thing that's been a steady, steady, steady for us is we're going to grow slow to grow fast. So we want to get it right instead of trying to do everything for everybody all the time. And I see this with neighbors, friends, and others in the industry where they go from one head this year and they put $200,000 into marketing. They go to 500 head next year and then their product sucks and they go, they go out of business. So like we want to just get it right. And whether that means we sell 200 or 2000, it has to be right um, and keep the integrity. So, no, I agree. And the other thing that's interesting is I know a lot of my farmer friends are, are hesitant to open their farm up for people to come out and see yes. because they're afraid, Oh, that's going to expose yes. me to liability or I'm going to have protests or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they, I they fear a lot of things and, you know, and it's, that's kind of the culture, but I think there's two things uh, there. One is is that that's maybe some unfounded fear that that you need to get over, and number two is is if you're doing some practices that you think that the general public wouldn't approve of, you really need to stop and ask yourself why Absolutely. are you doing those practices? Yeah, what, are you what are you hiding? You like you just hit the nail on the head. Is right. that everything? is like viewed from the lens of the outside looking in. And honestly, that's good for us. It's a good kind of like positive pressure to be like, what, what, how does this feel? You know, and that's where the go slow to go fast thing comes in because we're not, you know, there's, again, there's no overnight growth here. I mean, if you look at our, you know, P and L over or our, our number of pounds sold or whatever you look at for the last 15 years, it's just this like, you know, kind of, Get rich you know, slow. slow. Yep. Slow and steady slow. <laughs> Get for rich sure. slow. That's a, you know, and yeah. that, and that slow, steady, stable success lasts, you know, it's yeah. not, it's Hopefully. not the flash. <laughs> it's not the, not the, uh, you know, shiny object that everybody right. gets excited about, Hopefully. but you know, the, uh, when you read the tortoise yeah. and the hare, uh, the tortoise always wins. So you you had asked about kind of going back to the whole COVID March, 2020, everything was changing. Like how did that, you know, honing in on that a little bit. I mean, it was incredibly stressful. Um, You know, when I think back to that period, I, I, you know, I feel like an elephant on my chest. Um, 
I would say the biggest stress points were, of course, are we going to get sick? Or is our family going to get sick? Is our team going to get sick? Because we knew, okay, the minute one employee gets sick, like, you know, everything's done here. So that was incredibly stressful. And then it was our, our facilities, the USDA certified facilities that do cut and wrap for us at various locations and for various purposes, are they going to stay open? Because if they don't stay open, then we're done. And and then it was also um, how can we work with them, our, ven- our vendors, our business partners, our friends, you know, how can we get them to increase what they're doing for us so that we can have more retail product to fulfill these sales that are going up on our website and at the farmer's market. And so that was incredibly tricky. It took, you know, we were on the phone with them every single day, you know, many times a day, figuring out like how that could happen. And, um, you know, it was just one foot in front of the other. And of course, doing all of that when we were, you know, stuck at home and had our kids at home and doing school from home and, you know, all all of that. Um, I think for the first two months, I had my laptop on the kitchen counter and I would like sit at the stool at the kitchen counter. And then, you know, finally, after two months, my little one who's eight years old, came to me and was like, mom, you're in the kitchen like all day. Like you cook and then you clean and then you just work. And then like, you don't even leave the room. Maybe you should go work in another room. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's a great idea. That's like the best idea I've ever heard. And it took her saying that to me to like set up my little office here, you know, in our upstairs guest bedroom. And this is where I've been ever since, you know, um, so at least I can venture to another room in the house. <laughs> so moving forward, you know, you mentioned one of your goals is to where you can, you know, be able to stay at home and be full time with the business. Uh, what are what are yeah. some other things you guys want to accomplish here in the in the next five to ten years? Where do you where do you see this going? Um, that's a, that's the ten thousand dollar question right there. That's a really good question that we ask ourselves constantly. And um, I mean, I would say the number one goal is that we want to, Lauren and I personally want to work less because we work a lot. Like we are constantly working and we are thankful that we love the work that we do. So it's not like we're waking up and, you know, groaning about like, oh God, you know, I have to do this or do that. Like we really do love what we do, but it is too much for us. And so we're always working towards how can we make our operations more efficient? How can we hire the right people at the right time, you know, to take responsibility off of our plates? We've done a lot of that in the last five years or so. Um, But, you know, we want to keep the business. It doesn't necessarily have to grow. Like what Lauren said, if we can keep to our principles um, and grow, and if it makes sense to grow, and if we're selling to the right people, then we'll grow. And if it doesn't, then we'll stay where we are, or we'll go back a little bit and shrink down. Um, but we want to, um, you know, keep doing the work that we're doing in the carbon farming and keep kind of raising our bar in that level. We want to, um, you know, can, we want to keep the legacy of local agriculture going. One thing that we work on too quite a bit is we we basically want to manage this all like it's a real business, not like a lifestyle. And that's one thing that your listeners are going to 
are going to struggle with at some points is like, you know, you don't have to be the one going out feeding the cows, but the cows need to be fed, right? Or you don't have to be the one moving it. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why we've been able to be successful is we've been surrounding ourselves with really good people, setting the expectations, putting systems in place. But like our dream is five years from now, um, if we decided to go to Europe for a month, the business would still run because we have systems and everything in place. So we're, we're a long ways from that right now, but with technology, I mean, we could probably go to Europe right now and we'd be on the phone a lot and be on the computer a lot, but the business would still run without me showing up and actually sorting the cattle and picking up the cattle and, you know, all of those kinds of things. So that's our ultimate goal is to make it a real business that is going to run with or without us. And for us, ultimately, hopefully we enjoy life and, and um, we have a great business and great legacy and we get to travel and, you know, we're, we're, we love to work, but at the same time, we just want freedom to be able to roll when we want to roll. And I would love for both me and Lauren to be able to spend more of our time on like the um, more big picture, visionary, creative things and less on like the day-to-day, you know, details um, I'm a detail person, so I don't mind the details really, but you know, I enjoy it, but I, I want, you know, as we get older and as we evolve, like I want to be able to step away from that more. So I think a good friend of mine once told me, he says the true test of a business when you've gone from being a self-employed individual to a business owner is you can go away for three months yep. and when you come back, it's better than when you left. So yes. I've always and kept that in the back of my mind, and we've fortunately been able to do that with our California business there in the Central Valley. And uh, I, I've always tried to uh, put the right people in place, like you're saying. And, and what I look at is I'm giving more people an opportunity. Um, and if I do it, then I'm taking away an opportunity from someone else. So I, I don't want to be greedy. You know, I want to I want to be able to have other people who can can do these things and give them a good livelihood. So I like, I like that. And, you know, I want to quickly give a little plug to, um, I think about nine years ago, Lauren and I went to, um, ranching for profit school that's run by, um, ranch management consultants. And even just getting there was a really big deal for us. We had an infant and a toddler and two day jobs and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But like forcing ourselves to go to that school for seven days. And it was, it was transformational for us in every single way. But that topic was really, I think, sort of the impetus to us of having that mindset of, as Dave Pratt would say, we didn't want to build a company to build ourselves a job, you know, like a list of things to do and a list of chores and whatever, like we wanted, we want to build something that is going to continue on, you know, even if we're not there doing all of the work and that that's really transformational for us. So a lot of the folks we get to work with are, are larger scale farmers that, that may have open ground crops such as, you know, tomatoes, cotton, those kind of things, or, or dairymen that have maybe larger herd dairies or almond farmers and those kind of things. And we're trying to encourage them to incorporate cover crops, incorporate diverse rotations. And we've even got some people grazing in almond orchards now and, and looking at grazing some, some uh, dry cows or heifers and, and those kind of things. Talk to uh, that person who's listening right now, or maybe the person that's helping them, coaching them through this. Talk to them about what it's like to go down this regenerative path, why to do it, um, 
above and beyond just the, you know the dollars of it and those kind of things. Uh, just in the in our final moments here, talk about how would you encourage somebody who is of a larger scale to really change from a conventional approach more to a uh, regenerative approach and and what that will feel like uh, when during and after the process is is complete. I would say to the farmers and ranchers out there that are thinking about this kind of thing is to question every input that you buy that's not derived from mother nature that has a pharmaceutical company behind it, you know, because a lot of times those things are to solve problems um, that we've man has created, not, and to make it easier for us to manage things. But hey, mother nature is the ultimate, um, you know, judge on what's good and what's bad. But I just, I, I think a lot of the inputs, especially the chemical inputs, there's unintended consequences. I mean, look at what's happening to our bird populations. Look what's happening to our insect populations. I'm sure none of us like mosquitoes. None of us like yellow jackets and, you know, these types of things. So the unintended consequences has really made me question every single practice that I do. And I say, you know, what would this be like three or 400 years ago with the Native Americans doing it at, with the grazing side? With farming, it's a little uh, different and then what happened to the Roman Empire, the greatest civilization ever, you know, 2000 years ago failed. And it was because of agriculture and how they, how agriculture worked back then and the dense population. So I'm, I'm really concerned about the future of agriculture when it comes to inputs and unintended consequences that we do as row crop farmers and farmers around I'm a big pro agriculture guy. And at the same time, I'm scared. But on the other standpoint, I'm very optimistic of people like you that are out spreading the message that are saying, look, you can do this. And guess what? You're actually going to make more money and you're actually going to have healthier soil and you're actually going to feel good about your kids going out and breathing the air, eating that food. And to me, it doesn't, you know, 25 years ago, it didn't seem weird that you could spray a spray a chemical on your lettuce or on your almonds or on whatever and eat it later because that was all EPA approved or FDA approved. And we trust the EPA and the FDA, but I'm not in that camp anymore, especially after living, working for a big pharmacist for 18 years. I mean, I'm very skeptical of all of that data and anything that's made in a laboratory using it out in field when you can use other teas and natural i mean we want we want life in the soil we don't want to kill the life in the soil the more life the more biodiversity you have in the soil the better your almonds are going to taste the more production you're going to have the more carbon sequestered and so like i know we're going to be in the central valley in a couple months talking about this but like if i'm a i am a central valley almond producer we've had some really good years in the almond business i don't own almonds unfortunately but if i was i'd be looking at ways we could do cover crops so that I wouldn't have to put in other implements in and ways that we can graze with small ruminants to build soil life. And I wouldn't be working on ways that I would have to spray Roundup every year under those trees to make the ground hard so that when we shake the trees, we can sweep them up. I mean, I'd be looking at different ways to harvest the almonds, like shake the trees into a net, like with pistachios or some of these other things, so that we don't have to have hard soil in between the trees because the same time the central valley of california has so much opportunity in terms of growing days and effective use of water when you have no 
organic matter or less organic matter between those trees because you spray it with Roundup every single year. Don't know what's happening to the actual nut in terms of uptake and you know Roundup residuals or glyphosate residuals in the actual nut, but the soil is not going to hold water near as much if there's no carbon in it. And we're killing all of that every year. And we're just so that we can shape the trees and sweep them up. It's like, well, there has to be different technology. And when that happens, our water is going to be, you know, water, it's, it's, it's down there in the central Valley as a drought all the time, unless they get water from the Delta. So if they could figure out a way to water less increase yields, it's exciting because there's, hundreds of thousands of acres of almonds and they could be carbon sinks instead of um, not right now and really decrease water usage and make more money. But it's going to take some risk. you know. And, and bottom line, what you said I really liked is just you got to stop and think and ask, why am I doing it this way? Why couldn't I do it this other way? Or why couldn't I try something else? And I think we get in a routine, right? We're kind of like yeah. our cows. We expect to be moved at the same time. Is, you know, what if, you know, if you believe all the data that you get from your seed salesman or your whatever, your chemical salesman, if you believe, just ask yourself the question, what if we're wrong? And what is, you know, is this really, you know, fake data and fake science that insect populations have decreased by 70% since the 60s? Is that really fake or is that real? I, I don't have a resource to give you that statistic, but it's a big number. And bird populations have decreased. So what is causing that? Right. And, and, plus, and, and, and there's ways to prosper plants and protect plants without applying um, products to kill things. You know, yeah. you can outcompete. You can make more, de- uh, make improve defense mechanisms, I- improve the habitat, uh, improve habitat diversity. There's, there's, there's more things than just spraying a jug. So you have to look at uh, what that is out there and, and, and make that happen. So, well, I, you know what, I, I really appreciate the, the time today. Anything else you want to say before we, we wrap up here? Because I know uh, things don't just stop at the ranch uh, to, to be on a podcast all day. No, I think that's good. I think we covered it. Thank you it so much. Fun. Yeah. I mean, at least I got to have a 45 minute to an hour date actually talk about it. To <laughs> there you go. There you go. So Kim. Okay. Well, I hope you were inspired by Lauren and Lisa's story as they talked about the journey they've made to ranch in conjunction with nature, not against it. Biodiversity, carbon farming, managing water and soil, all to build a resilient system that can grow and change to fit their goals and mission. It's a winning story and one that we hope you've benefited from hearing. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. 